This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Improve your development skills by completing coding exercises that are peer-reviewed by real humans. Learn more at upcase.com. We're not used to doing in person episodes. I remember I have to be really close to this thing, right? Yeah, I I sit like that. Like this? Yeah. Are you recording? <laughs> oh shit! Always. <laughs> <laughs> Hey everybody, this is Gordon in Boston. Mark is actually on vacation in Southern California right now, so I wanted to mix it up this week. And so standing in for Mark, we have uh, Pat Brisbane, who's a Ruby developer here in Boston. He also is one of the guys kind of leading the push for Haskell and functional programming here in Boston. How's it going, Pat? It's going pretty good, Gordon. (laughs) Do you want to give a quick background? How'd you get into Haskell? Yeah, sure. It was a pretty interesting road. Started with uh, the Window Manager Xmonad, uh, which is a window manager for uh, Linux. It's popular um, with Arch Linux, which is the distro that I use. Um, and I had gotten into that sort of before I was into any kind of programming. They say that it's not really a window manager, but a library for writing a window manager. And then they just ship you a default implementation that hmm. you can go and edit as your version of configuration. Cool. Um, so, And that was all in Haskell, so kind of just tweaking my window manager i started to pick up haskell a little bit um got super interested in it read everything i could kind of grew from there cool so i wanted to talk about and we can jump around if we need to but i wanted to like i've been with with swift and even just before swift I've been talking a lot on the show about trying to get into functional programming and the benefits that I see about functional programming. And Mm -hmm. I mean, I've been interested in Haskell for a little while now and kind of been fumbling around with it, but I've been really, really interested in terms of like how we can take those concepts and apply them to Swift to change, (laughs) you know, the way we write apps, like, you know, better or worse, I think that's arguable, but I think it's a more interesting way to write apps using type systems and functional stuff, functional concepts. So I just wanted to talk about, uh, first, maybe we can get into some other stuff later. I wanted to talk about like how to get into this stuff. Cause I think a lot of people, I mean, you start seeing words, like you start looking at in in Haskell and you start seeing all the the operators and infix functions really. And in Swift, they would be operators, um, but it's the same concept. But, you know, symbols as function names and words like applicative, functor, and monad, and monoid, and fmat. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, like all those fun functional yeah. words that are super scary. And, yeah, because it's all, like, based <laughs> in math, right? Yeah. It's all, like, it's lambda calculus, yeah. right? That's where all those words come from? Or category theory, okay. a lot of it. Um, right. With, <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Which, even that, that's, like... <laughs> Okay, cool. Category. Like, I don't know what the hell that means. Yeah. You know I, mean? Sounds... I mean, all I can say is, like, you don't have to learn Lambda Calculus or right. Category Theory to use that stuff effectively. Right. It's good, I think, to use correct terminology. Like, there's yes. value there. Yeah. So I wouldn't want to use different words or, quote, unquote, dumb things down to make it easier to understand. You definitely need to use the right words. But you can get into Haskell or any functional language and learn all that stuff really slowly. Um, and it's not nearly as complicated as you think it is. For right. Sure. One of the things that's been hard and also helping is trying to learn to rely on the type system. Yeah. We've had conversations 
like recently about kind of like me trying to wrap my head around specific types and Haskell and and um, I don't know. I think that so we've had you know a quote unquote type system in uh, Objective C for years. You right. know what I mean? But it's been it's fairly weak and because yeah. so, it's all built on top of C. You there's can just, a big difference in my opinion between a type system and a good type system. Huge, yeah. Um, and I don't know. I feel like Haskell is sort of the first language to, that I've used. It's the first sort of on the bar of learning languages that actually has a good type system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like you could argue that something like Agder or Idris is better with dependent types. Mm-hmm. But if you're starting sort of at practical languages and popular languages, I think Haskell is the first point at which you hit something really powerful and really expressive. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just changes the way you do everything. Yeah. You know that whole trend that's gone around that I totally agree with about how people think that Haskell is only for smart people. Right. And a lot of people that write Haskell write it because it's only for dumb people. Right. <laughs> and it, it, it watches your back. It prevents right. you from making dumb mistakes. Right. Um, and the whole thing is like, it, for me, a lot of it is, is type Legos. It's just, yeah. you know, I have something that I need. I've got these pieces that have these types. Like, how can I fit them together? Right. Um, and sometimes there's only one correct way to fit them together and program writes itself at that point. Right, because then, then the compiler, like you're saying, like the compiler is checking your work. The yeah. compiler is not letting you – it's not letting you make mistakes. Right. Right, because it just won't even get to that point. Right, so. and a lot of time it feels slow. You yeah. know, it feels like, oh, my God, I'm sitting here, like, struggling with these type errors forever. Right, right. But, like, every 10 minutes you spend fixing a type error is a half an hour of runtime debugging that you're not going to have to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's definitely worth it, in my opinion. Yeah. That's actually kind of a big change from – Objective C to Swift has been that the compiler has gotten stricter, obviously, because mm-hmm. it's a stricter language. But then there are just so many things that have been warnings in Xcode and in the compiler. There have been warnings forever for a lot of these things. And we've always been a big proponent of turning on as many warnings as is reasonable. Like, there's some that are just not worth turning on because they just warn you about, like, language features. There was one where we had these auto-synthesizing properties, right? So mm-hmm. so you create a property, and then what you used to do is you used to write on the implementation you do at synthesize and then the property name, mm-hmm. and that would write the getters and setters for you automatically. Yep. And then they were like, well, that's stupid. If you're defining a property, you're probably – that was just a common pattern. You're going to want that. So they got rid of – they did auto-synthesizing properties. And I don't remember what warning it is, but there's a warning you can turn on – and when you do, then you get warnings for every time autosynthesis is automatically synthesizing properties for you. And it's like, yeah, like that's, <laughs> that's kind of what I wanted. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, there's warnings that don't make sense to turn on, but they were, they've always been warnings. And one yeah. of the things that I think a lot of developers have gotten used to is being like, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, like I know right. what I'm doing, uh, uh, you know. Yeah. And the number of times I open a project and like from inherited code or legacy code or whatever and you just end up with hundreds of warnings yeah. in the code and so people got used to that to writing that way like yeah warnings don't mean anything right. you know and they let them go all of a sudden with swift those warnings nine times out of ten become errors i, I very right. rarely see warnings it's only errors because it's like no look you're not conforming to this type signature yeah. the way you say you're going to. I wonder if that's causing problems for people. Yeah. I don't mm. know. It's hard. It's a hard shift to make to putting in the effort up front. Yeah. Um, I mean, the way I look at it is 
you know, your program has types. Like your program has interfaces. There's valid ways yep. to use a value or not. That's just there. Yep. And if your language doesn't have a type system, then you're doing all of that work in your head anyway. Right. So wouldn't it be nice if something else could think about <laughs> right, that? Right, right, right. It's just offloading that yeah. mental capacity, you know what I mean, into the computer. Yeah. And you have to be able to do it in a way that doesn't limit you. So you need an expressive type system. You need a good yes. type system, yeah, something that will right. still let you do what you want and have the same sort of, you know, abstractions that you need. Polymorphism. Exactly. And, yeah. All of that stuff is yeah. necessary to be, yeah. for it to be good. So what would you say to somebody, given that you've been, you've been doing Haskell for a while, you may have a weirder point of view on this because <laughs> it was your first language. And I, I don't know. Is that a common thing? Do people, are there a lot of people that Haskell is their first language? I, every time I tell someone that, they're very surprised. Right. I mean, I work with mostly Rubyus, but in general, right, right. I, think it's, I think it's odd. I get that sense. I, just, I, don't, I get the sense that most, and the weird thing is you came into programming the same way I think a lot of people do, which is I have a problem and I need to solve it. Yeah. What language can I use to solve it? And people end up with whatever language. That's how I think a lot of people get into Ruby at the beginning or get into Python and stuff like that. Most people don't immediately reach for Haskell, but given that right. you were in this Haskell environment mm -hmm. and the problems that you need to solve were written in Haskell kind of force your hand. Yeah. And it's addicting. Like Haskell, I think is totally addicting. Yeah. Like once you start to look up a little bit of it and learn a little bit of it, like it's, there's so much depth there. Yeah. Yeah. You can never get bored. So outside of Haskell, because I don't know, people may or may not want to right. learn Haskell. I think it's worth learning because it has similar concepts to Swift. Yeah. Um, I've heard Rust being compared more to Swift than Haskell. Yeah. Honestly. I don't know. I've actually never even seen any Rust. Yeah. But I've heard that it has a good type system. Yeah. It's I've heard that it's very similar to yeah. Swift. But what do you think someone's first steps would be for trying to get into this stuff, trying to learn? Yeah. It's hard. It's if you want... Like, are you trying to get into functional programming? Or are you trying to get into Haskell? I think more than anything, I think at a high level, the functional concepts that Haskell presents in a very, very pure way, obviously, the yeah. functional concepts that Haskell presents are beneficial outside of Haskell mm -hmm. and outside of Swift and outside of anything. Like, you can take these concepts and you can apply them to a certain extent to Ruby and you can apply them to JavaScript. Mm -hmm. You can apply them to anywhere because you're, you're learning about an idiom, not a syntax. Yeah. I mean, I've met a lot of people that are sort of functional programming geeks, mm -hmm. and they usually fall either in the Haskell category or the Lisp category. Right. Um, I prefer Haskell because of the type system. Like, Lisp is totally untyped. Everything is just a list of tokens. Like, that's the whole language. And people like that because it's so flexible. But yeah. the thing I like about Haskell is more the type system than functional programming. Mm -hmm. But I feel like with Swift, you know, it, it grew out of F-sharp, which is also sort of related to Haskell. And there's a lot of the same ideas there, both functional programming and the type system. Yeah. So if you wanted to learn about these concepts, I would probably err on the Haskell side. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the same recommendation is the Learn Your Haskell book. Yep. I mean, it's, yep. it's on the shorter side. It's super entertaining. Um, talks about things as a, at a high level, starts yeah. slow. You know, if you want to get into that, I would just read that book. Um, I've said this a couple times to you off the air, but there's a functional programming in Swift book out from the Objective-C.io guys. Yeah. And Chris Eidhoff, who's the head of that, he's, a, he's an old Haskell dev that moved over to Objective-C at some point. And so mm -hmm. it's really, it's been really kind of funny watching him be like, oh, shit, I can do all these things again. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know. I definitely agree that, you know, 
obviously we've had, we've had a bunch of these conversations before, but I've heard you say that like Swift needs to find their own way. Like yeah. it's not like you shouldn't be trying to write Swift code to look like Haskell. Right. Just like you shouldn't be trying to write Swift code to look like Objective-C. Right. Right. And I totally believe that. Right. More, more than anything, it's just that I don't think that we should necessarily follow Haskell's guidelines just to follow Haskell's right. guidelines. You know what I mean? Like it is a different language. It isn't a pure functional language. It's right. this mix of imperative and functional, and we can use that. But there have been times when it's like these two things, because we don't have some of the more like mathematically driven mm-hmm. types, we don't have functors or we don't have applicative, we don't have mono, uh, monads. Yeah. Not really, you know what right. I mean? Not like as a type. Right. Um, one of the things I think people need to get, and I, I don't, I've, I'm not sure if I've said this on the show, but the, like those words, those words, monoid and mm-hmm. monad and applicative and functor, like those are just type classes, right? right. So those in in Objective C, like we've had that right. for yeah, protocols. years. Protocols, yeah. protocols, and protocols in Swift. Those are type classes. It's right. just an abstract interface to something. So I think people see those terms and they're scary right. terms. And especially coming from an OO world, yeah. they're not really named very well. You know what I mean? I mean, from like yeah. an OO sense. Like yeah. monad doesn't tell me what that right. does. Unless you know what that word means. Unless you know what that <laughs> word means. And few, I don't know. I feel like very few people do. but yeah. Or, you know, or sm- people that are smarter yeah. than me. Anyway. <laughs> So since we're missing some of those high, high, high level types, I don't know that we have to be as rigid about those types. You know what I mean? Like, for example, we couldn't have a return function. Right. Anyway, but (laughs) like one of the things that I kind of like that Swift does that I get is kind of weird is the implicit wrapping of optional values by just returning the value that's going to be contained. Yeah, that weirds me out. It's bizarre and it takes a little bit of getting used to but really what it means is you have to deal with values and you have to deal with none Mm -hmm. you know what i mean right Uh, i guess unless you're pattern matching because then you have to match on some Mm -hmm. or none and that's a little weird yeah but that's like and that is i guess it's a little weird that that's the only time it pops up because most of the time you have wrappers around that stuff so you know we have that optional chaining Mm -hmm. the question mark dot yeah. Stuff so you can just chain optionals together and mm-hmm. at any point in the line if they fail, the whole thing fails. It's like right. it's like bind. It's like bind. Yeah. Yeah. But like bind for members, not bind for passing functions. You know what I mean? So yeah. So the question mark dot works. Right. Works so this for, is where like when the language mixes object oriented and functional, things get weird. It gets weird. And they, oh, I always have issues with that. That's it's like it's bind but using you know, get You're food, using, get bar, yeah. get as functions right and passing those through right you know it's mean? like if i was trying to do this the other day when i was trying to translate monads to ruby <laughs> it's like the bind function is it's as if the bind function is on an object so this the this reference or self-reference is the first argument yeah like that's the m of a yeah and then that's how it behaves yeah i think there there's some nice things in i don't know you can write haskell not really you can't write haskell in swift I don't know. Tony's doing a pretty good job. Yeah, but he ran into he ran into compiler issues at a certain point. You know, is what that because I mean? of the language or because it's beta? It's not technically beta. Oh, okay. You know what I mean? It's been released. It's actually at one one oh. now. So interesting. So I don't know. It's 
I'm not sure. Yeah. Honestly, is what it gets down to. I'm not sure what the problem is there. Yeah. I do know that he's pushing that stuff to its limits mm-hmm. because, you know, those aren't built-in functions. Right. And so he's using the this functional stuff in a way that kind of pushes – like that amount of type inference right. is kind of wacky, especially for like a non-lazy right. language. Yeah, the non-laziness is tough. Yeah. yeah. I see people try to translate this stuff to Ruby. Mm-hmm. A couple times at mm-hmm. least. I mean, Mike Burns has a gem. Joe's always thinking about that stuff. Mm-hmm. And for maybe, yeah, specifically for yeah. maybe, and and by extension, monads mm-hmm. or functors. Mm-hmm. And it's just you always find something where it just doesn't play nice. Mm-hmm. Whether it's you know the type system, purity, or laziness. Mm-hmm. Like you need all of them for these things to work as well as they do. Yeah. And I feel like in Swift, you know. It's the closest I've seen. Like yeah. Tony's applicative stuff for JSON parsing yeah. really looks like it <laughs> yeah. and works like it and has yeah. a lot of the same benefits. It's the closest I've seen in in non-Haskell. Yeah. And still, you know, you're saying he's running up against issues because of non-laziness, right? Yeah, he, he ran into some kind of exponential compile yeah. time thing just because of the type inference. You right. know what I mean? You start with like maybe one or two or three properties being parsed out of JSON, then it was fine. You started to get into five, right. 10, 15, 20. Like, you know, that can happen. You know right. I mean? You can have objects with just tons and tons and tons of data attached to it. And it ends up being exponentially longer to compile 10, 20, 30 minutes to compile these things. And that you can't. And that really sucks because now what can you do? Right. He was playing around with some of the type stuff and actually changed a lot of the syntax in this branch so that it doesn't look like Haskell anymore. Mm -hmm. It actually almost looks like a DSL, Hmm. which is what it is. You know what I mean? And so my initial reaction to that was kind of like. Well, that sucks. Yeah. It was nice to write Haskell-y stuff. But then at the same time, it's that, that same thing of like, right. why? Yeah, it doesn't have to look like it. I right. mean, that would just be, you know, superficial. Right. But, you know, I liked that it used the same theory right. and that it worked the same. Right. That was really cool. I think now what he's doing is he's creating a function. His parsing method builds a function. It, okay. like, returns a function, and then you pass that function in. The mm-hmm. framework would you pass pass an object into that function, I think, is the way it works, but yeah. similar. But I mean, that's kind of how the Haskell side works, too. You have to define an instance of from JSON mm-hmm. for your data type. And what you're defining is a parse JSON function, mm-hmm. which is a function from right. JSON to your value, you know? So, and then that ends up being used by the framework. Yeah, the only difference there is that, like, he's actually returning a closure. Mm-hmm. And in Haskell, that's kind of the same thing right yeah i mean there's really no yeah like it's just not specified to that level like it's just just like functions or values this is a function right yeah i think we've like we've talked a lot about maybe and optionals right and i've said before that i think it's an interesting way to kind of to deal with null or to learn Uh, that too i love i mean i i don't think i've ever said anything other than like that's fantastic like i'm i hate i didn't realize i hated nil until (laughs) I got optional. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, yeah, no, I want to codify that in my types. Right. I want to say, like, in Objective-C, since anything could be nil at any given point in time, right. you constantly had to either program in a way that was implicitly nil safe, mm-hmm. which a lot of times was okay because nil is a no-op, and right. it's not like Ruby. Like, Ruby, nil gets in your system in Ruby, and you're just kind of screwed, right? Yep. In Objective C, there were only a f- handful of places where it would blow up. It'd blow right. up if it started tried to get 
dumped into a collection. It'd blow up if it, you know, nil was supposed to be a view controller and you tried presenting <laughs> nil. Like, it has no idea how to do that. Right. You know what I mean? But stuff like the only, the other big runtime error was I have a, a method that takes a block. Is that block there or not? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And you always end up, and it's, you always, so you always, I always end up doing the same pattern in Objective C, which is like, if completion block, completion block. Right. You know what I mean? It's like, that sucks. It's annoying. It's stupid to write. Every time I write it, I feel like an idiot. <laughs> and like, that's fine if that block should be optional. But, you know, right. when we're talking about like a network callback, fetch a user, it's like, why would I not, like, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. Am I calling that for some weird side effect? That's probably not a good idea. Like, I'm probably doing something else wrong yeah. here. Why would you not ever right. not want that user back if I said fetch a user? So by, you know, once we get into Swift, all of a sudden I can codify that. Now you've got a type safe. That function, the types require you to have yeah. that. And, and I know it's there. Right. And then even if it's not there, now I can use these functional concepts to abstract away that mm-hmm. nil check. Yeah. But I don't know. I'm willing to bet that optionals are going to be the big window for a lot of people into yeah. functional stuff. You know what I mean? Because it is all of those things we've been saying. It is applicative. If it, it is mm-hmm. a monad. It is a monoid. It is a functor. It's, right. all, it's all of those things. And so because of that, you can do some interesting stuff with it. You can right. use fmap and bind and apply. Yep. And you can use these functional concepts that don't exist in Objective-C. Yeah, it's very easy to show that it's the best of both worlds because now you have this concrete type that tells mm-hmm. you explicitly this value may or may not be here. Mm-hmm. But like you were saying in Objective-C, you know, it was convenient to just chain them, right? Like yeah. just chain these calls together because nil's a no-op, no big deal. And it only blows up when it gets to a boundary. Right. UI boundary, right. database boundary, whatever right. it is. You can totally do that using fmap on maybe because <laughs> right. you just fmap all your normal functions. Right. So in Swift, we have this if let. Mm-hmm. I don't. I think they call it like optional unwrapping or conditional unwrapping, right. I guess. So you do like if let foo equals bar, assuming that bar is an optional something. And if bar is some thing, foo gets unwrapped, and that's a constant. Mm-hmm. So it's immutable, and it only exists inside the yep. positive branch. And that's cool. Like I think it's really neat thing to be added into the language especially coming in an imperative place where conditionals are what we're used to you know what i mean that's just how you deal with things you just don't do pattern matching you know what i mean Mm -hmm. like when do you do pattern matching in imperative languages not super often yeah i I mean unless you want to consider some kind of a switch statement that sort of thing but it's still different right and for us coming from objective c switch statements have only ever been Integers. Mm-hmm. You can only do them with integers. Right. So they were just not super useful. Right. And now that we have like real switch statements, quote unquote. Right. You know I mean, mean like, pattern matching only makes sense if you have values with multiple constructors. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't exist in a lot of languages. Right. Until, Slightly different terminology, I think, on. Um, you guys have enums. Enums, yes. Yeah, so right. they're, e- they're enumeration values, right. not. But, I mean, you can think of them as a constructor. Yeah. It's almost the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. It's just a weird semantic yeah. difference. You can use them the same. They sort of have the same behaviors. It's just a different implementation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So the if-let stuff is nice, but it just gets gross fast, right? Because right. once you end up with one or two or more, 
yeah. nested iflets. It's just like iflet, 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 right. and you're creating these constants right. and then using them all at the end, and then you have like this. And those are the that's the the exact kind of staircasing that you clean up with applicative and monad and Haskell. <laughs> right. No, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I think it ends up being far more readable. Like I can mm-hmm. look at that and getting back to what you were saying at the beginning, it's like if you just kind of like let that syntax wash over you, it's yeah. not super complicated. You know, no. even if it's all angle brackets yeah. and punctuation. Yeah. You know. The super punctuation always puts people off. Yeah. My argument has always been that because people bitch about that constantly. Yeah. You know, uh, I mean, it's just unfamiliarity. I exactly. Mean, you people, look at a math expression of like exactly. just a, a normal mathematic exactly. equation of pluses and multiplication, exactly. you know, that's a super yeah. punctuation too, but right. you just know it. Right. And it would really suck if you had to write the word add and multiply everywhere instead and, of like and put it all put it all at the beginning. <laughs> yeah. With a add bunch of parentheses. Two, three. Yeah. Yeah. It, that wouldn't make sense. No. Yeah, people always come up with this complaint of like, oh, it's just not readable. It's like, no, it's... It's actually really readable. It's very readable. It's a familiarity thing, not a readability thing. It's that you don't know what those functions are, and that's fine. Like, that's a valid argument. Yeah. You know what I mean? That there is a part of me that doesn't understand having complaining about having to learn a new thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I don't know. I feel like there's momentum for functional stuff mm-hmm. right now. I don't know why. Yeah, I, I don't... Like there's functional I, stuff. Functional I want to say that, but I also know that I live in a bubble. Yes. Like, I follow mostly Haskell people on Twitter. You know, I'm pushing Haskell at ThoughtBot. We've got, like, eight people interested in it here. So, like, maybe that's why it feels like there's but, momentum now. Yeah, like, yes, but I think Swift is an indication that there is momentum yeah. towards functional stuff. This is Apple. You know what I mean? Like, they're not really known for doing heavy duty experimentation Mm -hmm. with their dev suite, whatever, you know, like they've been criticized for the past eight or nine years about objective C Mm. and saying like, you guys are waiting too long. You're going to get left behind, blah, blah, blah. Like, um, John Syracuse, I don't know if you know who John Syracuse is. He, he writes those massive, you may not know these either because you're a Linux <laughs> guy, but he writes these massive, insane reviews on OS X. Super, super detailed, just like everything you need to know about an OS X release. They publish them through Ars Technica as ebooks and stuff. Like they're just massive, massive tomes of like anything you could ever possibly need to know about an OS X release. What's changed? What's different? All this kind of stuff. And they're fascinating reads. But he wrote this series called Copeland 2010 years and years and years ago. It was before 2010. I think it was before 2010. Where he was talking about how because Apple was holding on to Objective-C, that in a few years they were going to hit this wall. And what was going to happen was all of a sudden they were going to be left behind. And it was going to be very hard for them to catch up. Because look at what uh, Microsoft had to do, you know what I mean, to get all their stuff over to C-sharp. Or whatever, you know what I mean? Like when they yeah. when they changed languages, it was a big freaking deal. When OS ten came out and you had people moving to Objective C the first time, it's just a huge disruptive yeah. problematic thing to do. To change the languages in such a massive at a massive scale like that. 
so he was talking about how this was going to be a problem. And one of the things he said is like, and then I think he did a revisited thing a little bit later or whatever. But basically what happened is that they had this problem and then the iPhone came out and they kind of got their life extended because yeah. all of a sudden they had this low level language that ran really, really well on these low powered devices. You know yeah. what I mean? You're working in basically C, so it's all going to be very fast and easy to do. And, and they had mature frameworks around it and stuff. You know, so they've been criticized about being falling behind in the language space for years and years and years, and all of a sudden they come out with this language that has very strong functional mm -hmm. influences. Yeah, influences exactly. And given their kind of conservative nature towards this stuff, I can't help but see it as being a big red flag yeah. for like just this momentum behind functional languages, and a lot of people the, at Apple are Haskell nerds and yeah. stuff like that, which is wild. Yeah, um, I mean, functional functional stuff has been creeping into languages for a long time. Sure, I mean, I mean Ruby, Ruby claims yeah. it, Python yeah. too. Yep, yep, um, things like that. Anyway, people, you know, especially a lot of longtime OS ten like Cocoa developers complain about this new stuff and about having to learn new stuff, mm. and it seems crazy to me. I can understand having trouble learning it, right? I can understand it being hard to learn. I really can because yeah. I think that. It's probably harder than it needs to be making a switch from imperative object-oriented programming to functional programming, like mm -hmm. at a pure stance on both sides. You know what yeah. I mean? Moving from like a pure object-oriented thing to a pure functional thing well, is you're kind starting of starting over. You're starting over, yeah. and it's kind of it's kind of insane. It's hard to wrap your mind around it for us. So I understand it being difficult. I don't understand resisting that difficulty just because it's difficult. Like I, I really don't. And that's where I was getting with the momentum stuff. Like, mm -hmm. I think there's momentum towards functional programming. So yeah. what you are doing as a programmer, especially on Apple's platform right now, I think if, if you're not taking notice of the functional stuff right. and of the stuff that Swift can do, even if you're not using it all right now, but this seems like a great time to try to get up ahead of the curve. Yeah. And start wrapping your mind around some cool new stuff that you can do. Because if you don't, then what happens two, three years from now when you turn around and you're like, oh, it's too late. Yeah. You know, I don't know if two, three years is too short of a time frame, but that just drives, that drives me crazy. The yeah. readability argument. Cause it's like, yeah, I get it. I mean, it's totally understandable that you would say it's not readable when you don't know it. It's just a, it's so subjective though, yeah, and people exactly. treat it like it's an objective thing, right? right? People treat readability, quote unquote, as if it's like yeah. it is readable or it is not readable. It's right. like no, I mean, it's a lot of that has to do with familiarity, and yeah, there are things that once you're inside a language, you can do to make stuff readable inside that language. You know what I mean? But those rules are different for every mm -hmm. language. They're different for Haskell than they are for Swift. They're different for Objective-C than they are for Ruby. They're different, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's different rules that grow up around the language based on the way people are using the language. Right. So, I don't know. So what else? Final thoughts? Final thoughts. <laughs> I don't know, man. Do you think people are going to have the Scala problem in Swift? What's the Scala problem? <laughs> Where they program in Scala and they see these things that are really cool. And they want to know where they came from. And then they find out it's Haskell and they change languages. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. I, I think, think we people, have Tony. I think we almost yeah, have Tony. Yeah. I think people do that now, though. You know what I mean? I think people, like, 
I think there is a, there is a definitely a sense from some people that I follow that are frustrated with Swift because there are these holes yeah. that Swift has right now that are basically solved problems. You know what I mean? And I know that's easy to say that they're solved problems without knowing implementation details right. inside Swift or even without knowing the constraints that Swift is under at the implementation level. You know what I mean? Like, I have no yeah. idea what it's like writing stuff to run on the Objective-C runtime. And I mean, that's always going to happen when you start a new language. Right. Like, you're not going to have a 100% complete language right. like in year one. Right. But I do think that people are already excited for Swift and excited for the possibility, but a little frustrated that some of the things are wonky and some mm -hmm. of the things are weird. And, and I think that that's the same problem that we kind of been talking about before, which is like, maybe they just want Haskell. Yeah. And if you just want Haskell, then you're probably not going to be happy with no matter how close it gets. No. Yeah. Because it's not at the end of the day, Swift is not Haskell. Right. Swift is not Rust. Swift is not any of these other things. Right. And it shouldn't be. No, it shouldn't be. No. Swift is Swift. It's its own thing. Right. It'd be like complaining about Haskell because the type system isn't quite <laughs> as flexible as because it doesn't have dependent types or something. Yeah. <laughs> right. Or duck typing. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. It's like yeah. So I don't know. It'll be interesting to watch. I do hope that people get more interested in Haskell because more than anything, I think it's a fascinating environment to work in. Yeah. It's working like you start working in Haskell and you start re like just you write stuff so differently yeah. than anywhere else. And I enjoy writing that kind of stuff because yeah. it's like it's nice to step away from this environment that I'm super comfortable in and move into an environment where like in the past few weeks, like I've been doing all this Haskell stuff and I've rage quit a number of times <laughs> just because I have no idea what I'm doing and I just feel like a bumbling <laughs> idiot. And then like, like I don't even know how to look up document. Like I don't know how to solve my own problems. I don't yeah. know how to look up the documentation for the things that I want to try to do. And I, I just kind of stare at these yeah. web pages and I like, thumb stuff into into hoogle and i'm just like i have no idea like what I, how i'm supposed to use this thing but this is kind of a thing i need and then the results i get back are like okay i did something wrong because this uh, these results don't yeah. make any sense you know yeah i mean um, it's a double-edged sword this idea that you kind of when you switch to something completely different you have to start over mm -hmm. and you're going to have those frustrations mm -hmm. but you also kind of get to start over so you get to yeah, have those it's like freeing. yeah those like beginner moments where like something works that you didn't expect it to and like, yeah oh, that's really cool and you get that excitement of like yeah. you get Haskell to compile and it's like oh <laughs> you know, like holy shit like you save real quick because you know it's like <laughs> don't I, lose it don't yeah, lose yeah, it get get commit right now because I, I need to get back to this if I if yeah. I you know five minutes from now when I break the whole thing and yeah it's fun and I think a lot of people have forgotten. Because it is highs and lows, you mm -hmm, know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's like me literally rage quitting one day and then f calming down and coming back the next day and being like, "Yeah, okay, <laughs> let me look at this again. And it's like, oh, I'm an idiot. Like, yeah, that's not how either right. works. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's like, all right, all right, all right. Yeah. <laughs> I got it. And then, like, then I can like go in. And once I started down that road, it got easier and I had more of those small victories. And mm -hmm. you know, um, Yeah, and it gets better. I mean yeah. – Everything. Like it always does, yeah. right? Yeah. For everything. Yeah, it's true. I'm sure I rage quit Objective-C when I was learning it yeah. a number of times. <laughs> yeah. So we can wrap it up. Sure. Show notes are going to be found at buildphase.fm slash 61. 
questions and comments, you can let us know on Twitter at BuildPhase or via email, um, buildphase at thoughtbot.com. And as always, we appreciate ratings and reviews on iTunes. Uh, all right. Thanks for coming on, Pat. Thanks appreciate for having it. me. Yeah. yeah. Talk to you later. Bye.